the Brahma Viharas. So I'm going to talk about these four. And um, how they are one, and how they relate to us, to each other, how the play of the heart is part of our waking up. There is um, a fabulous treatise by a monk, Nyaponikathera, and uh, he has such a classic languaging. So I'm going to quote some of the things he says, because you're, I mean, it's so rich the way he describes it. One of the things he says, for instance, is these Brahmaviharas, when we imbibe them, inhabit them, cultivate them, live this way, are the answers to all social problems. That's a big statement. They are peacemakers. They're healers of the wounds suffered in the struggles of existence. They, as, uh, as Sylvia was telling us, the, um, the Pali word for them is the Brahma Vihara, Brahma Viharas. Vihara is tra translated as a living place, an abiding place, a home. And this means, of course, that the encouragement and the practice and the development of them is that we live in this state. They're not like a, you know, quick pit stop. It's actually, the idea is to be able to have a, a, as a refuge, as a sanctuary, as a place to be, to live with a state of, of connectedness, open-heartedness, warmth. And in a way there's like three aspects to them. They are a description of the principles of behavior. They are um, subjects for the contemplative to contemplate. Like we contemplate the refuges and, and um, we contemplate possibility of freedom. We contemplate kindness and connection and understanding and compassion. In a, in a more mental, contemplative way. We live this way of acting. And also they are um, subjects for meditation. They are actually very pr precise things to meditate upon and cultivate, as you've been doing for the week. So they've got this multitude of, of um, aspects that we can be with and explore. If we put them, those three together, if we live with a tenderness and a consideration, we find that what happens in our, with virtue, basically, we live according to the precepts and, and so on, then we, have, we develop what the Buddha has called the bliss of blamelessness. We actually don't have regret and remorse and guilty consciences, so it's much easier to then meditate. If we meditate upon these things, we're much more likely to live within them because we're imbibing them as we practice, and therefore we will live with the bliss of blamelessness, we'll be happier. The more we live this way and are conscious of it, the more we're going to be contemplating the joys of it. And so, whichever one of these we begin with, they all co-respond, as it were, they all feed in together. snowball effect. There is an aspect, I'm just going to mention sort of some of the bits and pieces and hopefully the end they all weave together in another snowball effect. But one of the important pieces about them, which is what's so transformative for us and sort of the principle of what I'm talking about tonight, is that this kind of contemplation and awareness and exploration is transformative in a particular way. It transforms us from the small, limited, narrowed, inward-looking, me and my little world, storms in teacups, in an expansion outwards. Ever-expanding circles of connection and understanding, and an ever-opening um, feeling inside us 
when we're not okay, whatever the scenario, it's a tight feeling. It's often heavy, but it's, there's tension and a, a sense of, we get quite, you know, when we're depressed or we're anxious, we get very, even isolated people use this word, separate and little. And when we have the opposite experience, when we're in a state that's not that, it's, it doesn't have the boundaries, or less anyway, more permeable. And so the word that's used to describe this kind of experience is boundless. It's about extending boundaries working with boundaries, with care, but what happens is we find our boundaries tend to expand. Even just somebody in a conversation with me today, this afternoon, was talking about at lunch, she sat down, and without any intention, she found herself wishing well to the people around her. Her sense of herself had just now grown several feet. It's just that simple, but it's a, we actually can experience that expansion. And the way it's taught is an expansion. We begin, I mean, it's structured in this way with ourselves. And then we'll add somebody who we like, who's in our life a little bit beyond ourselves. And then some more people, and then some friends, and then some neighbors. And the structure of the practice, we haven't gone there. We've only had a few days of this. It, it becomes in going to people in the north and in the south and in the east and in the west, and everyone in Marin County and everyone in San Francisco. and upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths and outwards and unbounded. Remember we sang that? So there is this element of expansion beyond the ego. Our troubles are all in our mistaken perception of reality, which is that we view reality from this one small point of view. And it's a narrow point of view, when in fact reality is without any point. It's, it's the pointless point. And so we are learning freedom, which means beyond this small point of view. So that characteristic of the expansive nature of this practice is built in. Isn't it clever? So brilliant. This guy was brilliant. <laughs> so even when we do the little chant, the little simple sweet chant we've been doing, we say, may I be... May I be filled with loving kindness. And then we say, may you be filled. And then we go, may we be filled <laughs> with loving kindness. Even that has that principle. Another little sort of, these are a few separate pieces, as I said. I want to bring them all together, but I'm going to do a little experiment. Who should I do this experiment with? I think I'm going to choose some of you folks here. Would you mind telling me your name? Maria. Maya? Maria. Maria. Yeah. And you are? Tom. Tom. And right behind Tom? Mary. Mary. I've got to write these down. Hang on a second. <laughs> I got confused with Mary and Maria already. Mary, Maria, Tom. Yeah, you say it. Brian. And Roz. Roz. Um, who's Tom? <laughs> <laughs> and who's Brian? Are you Roz? Yes. This is not working. I don't know how to ask the question to make you answer the way I want you to answer. <laughs> I don't know if I can do it. What I'm wanting to do is to make you point to your hearts to say me. You know when you say to somebody, who is so-and-so, this is me, is this me? Yeah, this is me. You're saying this is me because we've been taught by our school teachers to get attention that way. <laughs> But really, I, I, so that didn't work, that little experiment, excuse that. <laughs> but you know, there must be times, there are times, when somebody asks you, you know, is, who is so-and-so and so-and-so, and you go, this is me. And where do you point? You don't point, and you don't point, <laughs> you don't say. 
badge, you know. You go, you go heart. We identify with ourselves in our heart. This part of ourselves is the essence of ourselves. And there's another thing about the heart, because this is a practice of the heart, so it's so utterly personal. Um, there's another whole area of fascination for me around the heart. And I've talked about this, and I've even read things from a book in previous meta retreats, which I won't go so far as tonight, but um, w- there are some cases about between 10 and 15% of the time when um, a person receives a heart transplant, they receive not just the heart, but they receive the personality that belonged to the donor of that heart. Only in about 10 or 15% of the cases, but clearly. And there are unbelievable stories of examples of this, and like tastes in music. You're 55 and all of a sudden you like rap music and you can't stop singing it, stuff like this. <laughs> or you start using words that you never ever knew even the meaning of. One is a story, I'll never forget this one, of a young 19 or 20 year old Mexican man receives the heart of a 50 odd year old man um, who was killed very suddenly in a car crash, who was married. And after nearly a year or something, the physician who writes the book when they want to do it, introduces the families. So that the wife of the husband who had been killed was wanting to meet the recipient of her husband's heart, who was this young Mexican guy living in the States with his Mexican mother who spoke little English. And they met. And so she now is meeting her ex-husband, her husband's heart. And... um, As soon as they come together, she asks the young man if she can put her hand on his heart, which she does. And he then says, it's all right. And he he holds her hand there and he says, it's all right, it's all copacetic. And the Mexican mother, who doesn't speak much English, says to the physician, who are both in tears watching this, the, the woman turns to the doctor and she says, what's copacetic? And then she explains, ever since he had the heart, he's been saying, this word, copacetic, she has no clue what it means, of course. And so the wife hears this and says, that was our special word. Whenever we'd had a fight or any kind of a problem and everything was okay now, we would say, everything's copacetic. And he just said it as soon as her hand touched his heart, for example. Incredible. So this is is a peacemaker practice. This is... um, it you know, an answer to a lot of the social ills. It's because it's our essence, this practice, tuning ourselves into the most precious parts of who we are. Now, these practices evoke degrees of response in us, as you've, of course, been discovering. Um, And I just want to make sure that we all understand that it's not the most intense response that means what it is. Metta and its relatives, its other three relatives, um, are describing the state of tenderness that the heart's capable of when it isn't confused and shrinking. And sometimes that can be a lot of emotion. Sometimes, as you all know, there can be tears, there can be trembling feelings, excitement, and so on, relief, and so on, grief, whatever. That level of emotion is extra on top of what metta is. And it sometimes occurs and rises up. But that's not to measure your practice by. That's not what we're trying to achieve. That's not what metta means. That's emotion that's arising, which it will come and go anytime, anyway. So we use the word love for metta, loving kindness. And I, I always have a little bit of a proviso because love is so easily romanticized and so easily Hollywoodized and dramatized. And, and we think that it means some big you know, it's like commercialized, it's exploited massively. It, 
it sometimes we feel definitely that powerful sensation that can be included in the capacity to be connected and open and tender. But so can a cooler experience of simply friendliness, ease, comfort. When you're with a good friend, you're comfortable. There is the absence of needing to do anything, behave in any special way, and so on. It's a little quieter and more ordinary. That is absolutely meta. No less meta because of the less tears or juice, or drama, or emotion. Even a little cooler, again, can be the state of this is how it is, that allowing we've been talking about, the, the ability to, when we've described a bit about forgiveness practice, this is how it is. That may not feel like you as loving, but it's absolutely meta. It's the non-argument, non-conflict, not having to rearrange one deck chair on the Titanic, this is going down. <laughs> or this went down, let's say. <laughs> it's that, this is, it's that having space for and that's that. That's meta. And even less of an emotional response can be the state that is patient. The state that is a tolerant state that I can just rest with whatever is going on. It's even less than you'd think of friendliness, and that still is meta. It's to do with the openness. It's to do with the expansiveness compared to the, the shrinking state where we, our small point of view, has an agenda to do something about something. It's the absence of the ego, the absence of the agenda that leaves meta. Meta is what there is when we are not in the way. So be not confused about emotion. Don't confuse emotion with open-heartedness, availability. Some people describe metta as like your heart being like a, a swing door. You know those doors that they have in restaurants where the you know, waiters can go in either direction? It can open outwards with your coming forward and contribution and expression, and it can open inwards with your availability and your receptivity and you're being able to receive somebody's gesture of some kind. It's a, it's a not locked. This is a little book. I'd never heard of this person before, I just sort of picked it up in a bookshop. Piero Ferrucci, Italian. It's called The Power of Kindness. It's a very rich little book. There's a great statement which I really appreciate, which is, attention grows affection. You just change the T into an F and the N into a C. Attention is thus a form of kindness, and lack of attention is the greatest form of rudeness. Isn't that the sweet, to think like that, just to actually bother to be there for somebody? It's a gift. And when we don't bother, when we dismiss and cut off, it's actually, that's not meta, it's rude. When you think, the opposite of rudeness is meta. The absence of meta isn't kind. The same holds for the world around us. I'm just jumping in here. The ecological tragedies with which our planet is struggling are a result of our inattention and therefore our lack of affection for it. Right? We haven't paid enough attention to what's around us and to the consequences of what we're doing. All we have to do is open our eyes. Inattention is cold and hard. Attention is warm and caring. Those are the words I'm using all the time for metta. <coughs> so these four, Brahma Viharas, divine abidings, divine abodes, the, the resting places of the divine ones, or our resting places when we're being our fine selves, who of course we are lots of the time, when we're feeling 
at our best, when we're feeling good, right, whole, healed, we are resting in these divine states. Note the word resting, because it's a relief, because you don't have to do anything when you're in that state, right? It's a being, not a doing, it's a resting. First one is metta, we've been talking all about metta. Here's a little meta story that isn't, I didn't love it, I didn't like it, I wasn't very friendly, but I accepted the fact that one day I was on a retreat and I was in a, a little, in a room, in my room. It was evening time and uh, it was summertime and I heard as I was relaxing in bed, a mosquito. My first response was not meta. <laughs> and it was like, oh, it's dark. How am I going to find the thing? You know, like chasing it around in the. I was in a room by myself. And at some point, I don't think it took very long, I had this brilliant idea. I turned the sheets down, I laid myself there. <laughs> come on, come along. I just gave myself to the mosquito, let it get thoroughly attached, one prick full, 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 completely content, and while it was doing that process, I got up and walked outside and blew it off. I had one prick, I had no struggle, it was completely satisfied, it wasn't going to bother another yogi now, it had its fill, human blood. Isn't that clever? That's meta. Helpful for everybody, no contention, no anger, no blame, no perpetuating the problem, no wheel spinning. proud of myself. <laughs> the next one is karuna, or compassion. We haven't focused specifically at depth um, on compassion, although we've all been touching it throughout the whole week, and you too have been. Compassion is the same thing, whether it's really intense or really low-key, but in the face of struggle in the face of some form of difficulty or struggle. It takes on a flavor which we call compassion. Nyaponika Thera, in his gorgeous language, he says that compassion, when compassion can meet the problem, is Instead of the paralyzing, he calls it the paralyzing heaviness, which is the normal, oh no, oh, you know, oppression that we get when we're in some form of upset or grief or whatever, pain, gives wings to the lowlands of the self, he says. <laughs> Isn't that a lovely image? Because when we are in our small, tight prison with our little ego, it's heavy. And when we are expansive, it's light, it gives wings. I just think it's a beautiful image. It's hard being a human. That's the phrase that I say the most often whenever I'm speaking with somebody who's having a hard time. It is hard being a human. It's beautiful, it's indifferent, it's everything, and it's hard. <coughs> That's a compassion phrase. It's, it is hard, it's like, yeah. Yes to it, not resisting it, like not resisting the mosquito, and it's hard. Mudita is the third. Mudita is appreciative joy or joy. One of the greatest forms of mudita that we three certainly, I know, and I haven't in this retreat specifically asked our other two teachers over here, but that we know, we experience in speaking with you and witnessing you and accompanying you as you go through your process, every time there's some wings that help you from the lowlands of self, we love to see it. We get to share it with you. We get to see your eyes bright and we get to see those tender faces and the lacking wrinkles falling away. And it's, That is just pure modita. We're so happy to see to, to be there with you, it's an amazing privilege. When do people get to have such a 
an opportunity day, one after another, after the other, 16 times a day. <laughs> it's incredible. It's, a, it's delight. It's shared delight. That's, it's a perfect example <coughs> of mudita. Appreciative joy or empathetic joy. Irresistible. It's irresistible to be with you in the way that you are when you're describing and then this happened. It's irresistible. We cannot but feel it too. It's so fun. One of the things about having joy in the heart is there's an optimism. This is a sweet little thing, and lots of you know about this, but this is also mentioned in this book. <clears throat> it's about um, being an optimist. And when we're an optimist, we assume things will be okay, rather than a pessimist who's expecting the worst, right? So it's got an element of trust to it. Joy allows a certain trust. Trust in clients makes for good business. Muhammad Yunus, the founder of the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh, gives loans to the very poor, helping them to start small businesses, such as an umbrella or boat factory, fly screen manufacturer, spice or cosmetic industry, there are no laws applying to the loans. Let's not go there. No guarantee is required. The clients would not be able to pay anyway, and there is no written contract, just their word. Eunice has great faith in the latent resources of all human beings. The results bear him out, because with his faith, he has helped thousands of people emerge from poverty and rise to the dignity of independent means. This is good business, not charity. The repayment of his loan is 99%. That appreciative joy and appreciation actually breeds more of the same. It's, it's catching. All of metta is catching. Not guaranteed, not all the time, but lots. So there's um, there's a aspects of bringing joy into our lives, which just really so help it, and it's expansive. So here is a, a couple of stories. There was a, a friend of a friend of mine, this is a second-hand story, but remarkable, who, um, his name is William, and William was dying of AIDS, and was surrounded by his friends, and um, in the last, very last few days of his life, he was at home. His mom had come from far away to be there. And uh, my friend was one of the few who was around him and with him. And his brother had come, whom he hadn't seen for a long time. And uh, quite a lot of people clustered in this smallish bedroom. And somebody at some point apparently had bought, I mean, lots of people were bringing flowers. But there was a, a, um, a white plastic bucket that had, had flowers in it that was nearby, and his brother at one point was walking past somebody else, very crowded, and tripped over and kicked this plastic bucket. And William, in his semi-present state, says, somebody kicked the bucket. <laughs> <laughs> They're all just loving him so much, but this is his nature, and he's so <laughs> able to... And then another point, he sort of opened his eyes you know, and sort of like checked and could see all of his favorite people nearby. And he says, this is called having your wake and eating it too. No. <laughs> Why not laugh a little? What's wrong with a little joy here and there? I mean, I was sort of saying it a bit the other night, but appreciative joy. He was so appreciating everyone being there with him. He was able to play with them. It's incredible. Upeka, the fourth of these, is um, equanimity. I'll talk a bit more about this. My favorite, I think, equanimity expression, if I'm, and this comes up a lot in this kind of situation, which means during our meetings, because that's what I'm doing most of my talking. So I'm with you, and somebody says something about something, rather, and I say, my equanimity response, which is, of course. <laughs> Basically, how could, how could you not feel that way? How could it be any other way? 
I talked about this the other night. If I were you and if I were, had your whole story, I'd feel exactly as you feel, of course. It's that, it's the yes that's born and brought forth from seeing a lot of the picture. It's the big picture story. When you're in the small place, the non-expansive place, it's like, oh, this was the story. And then the response of like, well, of course that was the story. It opens up the, either the love or the hate or the struggle or the identification of the story to say, it's inevitable. This is, this is how it is. It's that openness that can be okay with whatever the detail. It's the, um, to some of you I've said this, meta, it's similar to awareness, which I'm going to get to in a minute, is bigger than the contents of the things that it's aware of. So there's a story, there's some experience, some event, yes, and then there's awareness around that that goes, aha, awareness can handle that. When there isn't awareness that's big and expansive, then the reaction to the story, if it's unpleasant, is upset. But when there is that feeling of spacious, of course, we don't get so upset. Opeka is the state that's not upset by the ups and the downs. It's, it's not disconnected, it's there. But it's, it's bigger than the details. It's like a very stable boat. A little tiny tippy boat isn't equanimity. It's like, you know, a little tiny wave and it'll be really tippy. Kayaks. But a ferry, no problem. You know, it's like, it's big and stable. The state is expanded. Equanimity is the most expanded aspect of loving kindness, of metta. Another um, alliteration or um, example of the metta as a progressive practice in this way is, I don't even know where this came from, but I've learned this long ago and I teach this this way because it's got that same principle in effect of expansion. Metta being the first one is described as the way, the simplicity of the way a mother cares for her newborn. Simple, sweet, pure love. Compassion is they're three years old and they've just stubbed their toe. And they think the world has come to an end. Or their foot has dropped off. And it's so dear and they're so sweet. And you know that they're upset, but it, you're not upset. But you, you feel for them. It's a tender, oh, feeling. The next one, the mudita, is they're um, a teenager and they're coming home with wards, you know, like, yeah, look what I did, and they're full of confidence and happy, and you're happy with them. And there's a kind of, you know, power in it. And the opeka is that they are grown up and left home, and they're now doing their own thing, and they're living with somebody who you probably, you, know, you may like, you may not like, they're doing <laughs> work that you may think is brilliant or be thoroughly boring, or you can't imagine why on earth they're doing that, or, you don't withdraw the caring, but the conditions of it are whatever they are. It's, it's an unconditioned, unconditional caring, including all kinds of peculiar conditions. <laughs> but they don't, they don't stop or affect the, the purity of the caring, because the caring's bigger than all these weird things they're doing. So it's, got, it's grown. We have to grow up as our children grow up. They make us grow up. Right? And another little thing I think is a really helpful little equanimity kind of reminder. These are not traditional phrases. Is, um, and I say this to some people sometimes, particularly when we're beset with that feeling of um, what other people think of us, that very common feeling of you know, judgment and other people's opinions. Um, I often say this, and it's, it's an equanimity piece of advice, is no one actually cares about your stuff. They're completely preoccupied with their own. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I wonder if I was disturbing, or, you know, all that sort of anxiety. No one's noticing. We're all way more interested in our stuff. You know? And it kind of like, it gives us that bit of space. It's like the whole world isn't examining you with a microscope. That's, that's 
reminding us of that, that it's an equanimity feeling. It's like, oh yes, a little more space. So I want to talk about how these relate to each other, because this is really, they aren't separate things. They're, they're actually one thing that shifts its flavor. And Nayaponika Thera, who I've now mentioned several times, has um, some amazing language to describe, which I want to share with you, because you know I like language, um, about how these shiftings continue, and how all of these four relate to each other. They don't just stand alone. You're not just compassionate one moment and then just full of joy and so on. They're not just switch one off and switch one on. It's way more fluid and way more um, interwoven than that. And to appreciate that, I want to mention again, which we have also mentioned in passing, that the, the pure states that I've just described are the free, free from the sense of me, that smallness. And of course, the truth is that we may feel an absence completely of metta. We do, lots of the time. We may feel uh, in the neighborhood of metta. We may feel completely boundless and elevated and divine for some moments, which we do. But we generally live much more frequently in the near enemies of the thing than the real deal because we have our egos along with us. The more ego, the further away we are from that state. When we're feeling fairly good, we may think that we are actually in a meta state, but we're often hanging out in the near enemy zone, which is called masquerading as the purest meta. So just be wary of it. And I'm gonna mention these because you can see how um, this interrelation works. When, when love or loving kindness or friendliness is the near enemy of it, in other words, confined somewhat by me, my sense of myself, my self-concern, it becomes attachment. It becomes, I love you if you love me back. It's a deal. There's some expectation, I love you if you behave a certain way and you come home every night and you don't leave your smelly socks around and da 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 da. There's some kind of like exchange wanting something back. The pure friendliness is completely unconditioned with no such expectation or needing of any kind. Just open, no grasping. The near enemy of compassion, when there's still a bit of me in there, there's struggling or suffering or somebody is ill or something really hard is happening, and the response that's not completely okay and, and there with it is pity. And pity means, oh, this is awful. And I just, I'm shrinking somewhat. I don't want it. I hope I don't get it. You poor thing. And so there's a keeping a little, keeping away, because basically it's fear. It's aversion and fear of that, not being able to let ourselves feel it really. So some kind of withhold. So it's classically pity. The near enemy of mudita and appreciative joy, this is an interesting one, is um, exuberance. And I'm going to describe what um, Nayaponikathera says. He calls that going astray in the labyrinths of uncontrolled emotion. Isn't <laughs> that great? So if we go astray in the labyrinths of uncontrolled joy, we become exuberant. We like, we've just lost all awareness and we're just like getting off on the thrill of it all. And we are no longer connected. That's why exuberance is one of the uh, near enemies of, of uh, appreciative joy. There are others, as uh, <coughs> Sylvia was telling us this morning, envy. You know, quite often, somebody's having a one, you know, guess what, I won the lottery. It's like, oh. <laughs> Me too, a little bit. No, no, no. Or that comparison of like, you know, God, that's never going to happen to me. You know, these things never happen to me. You know, I, my ego comes up there when someone else is having some great successes. Oftentimes, we just don't have that innocent, open, pure, total delight. That's a near enemy. 
And Upeka's near enemy, equanimity's near enemy, is um, indifference. It's like, oh well, whatever, I don't care. They're grown up now, they're going to do what they do, they're going to live with whoever they live with. It's a shutting off, it's a dismissing, a disconnect. That's not equanimity. That's no heart. Equanimity is totally connected and still whatever, whatever will be, and I am here and I am open. So it's, it's the feeling of, of, of the openness, that door is, to, is open. It closes off with indifference. It's just like turns away. Who cares? So, compassion helps kindness and friendliness not get too superficial. So the word um, sometimes uh, for uh, loving kindness, which in some of the wishes can be there, uh, would be say, for instance, happy. And happy for some people has this Pollyanna aspect, bubbly and trivial. So Nyaponikathera would say, um, sentimentality, for instance or um, superficiality, pleasure and happiness, but sort of in a selfish, sort of indulgent kind of, oh, everything's lovely way. When there's some compassion, it tempers that Pollyanna with the reality that there are joys and there are sorrows, and that the world is bigger than just having fun. And so it gives a depth and a breadth to the tenderness that's there and stops it becoming trivial, superficial. trying to find, because I've written several things here. Um, it, uh, compassion helps both joy and love, friendliness, metta, from um, narrow self-satisfaction and complacency. If you just want to be happy, don't want to think about the rest of the world and actually appreciate that there's it's an enormous lot going on here. And this person next door to me has got some whole other reality than this one. Remembering the joys and the sorrows helps us stay way more wise than just self-satisfied and complacent or jealously guarding our petty happiness. It's that little f- silly happiness that's fun, but that's not what we mean by this. It's way, way more profound. One of the things that um, Anaponika says is that when we remember some compassion, that there is a whole world of both joy and unbelievable misery, then um, we won't forget that true, true happiness is liberation. It isn't temporary happiness in some pleasant experience right now. So it keeps us wise in that way. Sentimentality, you know, like shallow shallow feeling. Oscar Wilde, this is just a little funny quote I'm throwing in because it's a great quote. Oscar Wilde said, the sentimentalist is a person who wants the luxury of the emotion without paying for it. (laughs) This isn't trying to make it a cheap escape from the reality, but this is like still being tender and connected while remembering the whole story. Equanimity, of course, also keeps metta big and not getting lost in the labyrinths of uncontrolled emotions. It's like, see the whole picture, that big view. Loving um, joy, appreciative joy and happiness needs to go with compassion and helps compassion from becoming just too somber in the face of difficulty. So William is able to bring some joy to the, his own dying and the grieving of his friends and family with that playfulness. It doesn't stop the grieving and the loving and all, but it doesn't have it sink into sort of somber melancholy. And uh, Nyaponika's words about this are, so we don't become overwhelmed. We don't get reduced and small and wallowing around in just this awful thing. It keeps us a little more expanded purposeless, melancholic brooding, which weakens us. 
You know how grief is so debilitating? A little joy allows us not to be completely consumed and weakened and helpless. It gives us some strength and some um, ability to keep functioning, really. And upekka, that wisdom, the, the spacious, seeing the whole story, somebody's suffering, and yes, we all suffer sooner or later. That ability to have that wisdom, that broad view with suffering, is what brings the, the, um, the steadiness that we can keep doing it. It gives us patience, it gives us the tolerance, it gives us a kind of, I can keep going here. It, it allows it to keep going because there's a kind of lawfulness to this. If there weren't that big view, we could just get so into, oh, this is just too much, and wish it were different. Aversion can come. But when we can say, you know, this is the way it is here, and this is what happens sometimes, it keeps that uh, a, a, a patience, <coughs> and a, an ability to keep going. For those people who live around a lot of struggle, particularly I'm thinking of people who are caregivers, they need to keep this in mind. Because without it, that's why caregivers burn out, is they forget that aspect of this is the way all life is for everyone, sooner or later, somehow, including me. Without that memory, it's like this is too hard. This is too hard to deal with, and we get consumed and burned out. Gives us courage. I was a midwife, as you mostly know, for a long time, and it's that ability that allows the midwife to be able to not get freaked out when the woman gets freaked out. It's like, mm-hmm, it's really hard. That's right, that's what it's like for you and me and everyone going through it, and all those six million women doing it right now. I would often say that to a woman in labor. Sometimes it drove them crazy. They wanted to me just think about they were the only one in the world going through this, but to remember that, yeah, this is what it takes, actually. It's that supeka, and it gives us that, it gives us a steadying and a strength. And then with upeka itself, even though it feels like the grandest and wisest for this big, long vision and everything, which it is, because its near enemy is indifference, we need to also not just, we're not trying to just have equanimity because we could then lose the tender warmth that comes from joy and that comes from love and that even comes when things are difficult. <coughs> Remembering that things are difficult and not just going, oh well, it happens to everybody but having compassion in there and having love in there and having joy in there keeps the warmth that stops the indifference. Indifference is cold. Indifference is cut off. So just equanimity by itself can easily become in, indifferent and cut off. So we need these others. We need to be remembering that we are attached. We do care. We do love. We can be happy. That there is some struggle. Really, struggling is hard so that the... the uh, equanimity heart doesn't <coughs> chill. So those are all a bunch of words, but how that we, we actually experience this is the more we um, familiarize ourselves with our own inner landscape, our minds and hearts, the more we um, recognize the absence of metta, the more we recognize when our heart isn't expansive, when it's tight. We see that more and more. But because we see it, we have a little choice about whether we want to keep doing it. Our troubles are when we don't realize what's happening. Remember I read that poem about dropping keys. As we become the sage instead of the small man who's keeping everything in cages, we're dropping keys, meaning 
we're allowing out these pieces that have been unconscious. When they're unconscious, they are actually running us. We are run by our needs and our fears. But when they come out and become conscious, they are not running us. Their power is reduced. And we, in that reducing of their unknown, unrecognized, unconscious push, now they're recognized and their power is reduced, we basically then have some choice about whether we're going to behave this way or not. We aren't being dragged around by our unconscious. <coughs> the unconscious is the absence of metta. The unconscious is the ego, the, the reactive, the unthinking, unknown, unrealized ignorance. That's what we mean by the ego. Metta is the absence of that. We experience metta when that unconscious reactive, we don't realize we're doing it, we didn't mean to, we blurted out something, behavior is melting. This is freedom. This is awakening. This is enlightenment. Enlightenment is being in a state where we aren't unconsciously in our little narrow small self-concern experiencing the world. A moment of enlightenment, there isn't that self-concern, there isn't that sense of self. That sense of self is evaporated and all there is is everything else. Everything, not even else because just everything. When there's no separate sense of anything, there's no else. That state is metta. A state of freedom from small me is metta. Metta is awakening. Metta is an enlightened state. It's a Brahma-vihara. When we practice metta, we're pretending we're enlightened. We're mimicking it. We're rehearsing enlightenment over and over and over. And we can and can't in different degrees at different times. We're practicing being wonderful. Enlightenment happens. We can't do it. We can't make it. We can pretend. And we can do the things which will be there when a moment of enlightenment happens as much as possible. But enlightenment, according to Chogun Trumpa, is an accident. But by practicing it, we make ourselves accident-prone. <laughs> way more likely to happen if we're actually considering our neighbor than if we're thinking of robbing a bank. Much more likely to happen. We're more available. We're dropping keys. When there isn't the sense of me, that small, contracted self-concern, when that's out of the way in a moment, Something happens, and the part of life which is in this particular body responds. doesn't react with agenda. It simply responds in whatever way is necessary. Somebody is tripping over, and they're helped. Somebody's happy, and there's joy. Somebody's in pain, there's compassion. Somebody's nothing special, and there's love. Those Brahma-viharas are what is when there is not ego. When there is enlightenment, that's what there is. When we understand clearly the sense of me, we see it, we recognize it, we see the manifestation of it, that's called awareness. That's called insight. That's called wisdom. Wisdom is the understanding. Metta is how that understanding behaves. The behavior of wise ones is kind. That's the thing about, that's why we like wise people. Not because they're wise, it's because they're nice. <laughs> they're great company. It's the way they express themselves, the way they relate to us is friendly and kind because there's no separation. It's not because of the information or the fact that they are wise. It's because it feels good. But they're not different things. When there's understanding, there's kindness. So we can practice insight, meditation, 
understanding, seeing clearly, and we will be kind. Or we can practice kind and pretend to be wise, and at moments we will be wise. It doesn't really matter which way you go. They're the same. <laughs> one becomes the other, the other becomes the one. Choose your route. Choose your doorway at any time. They're like one coin with two sides. And we, all of the practices that we learn when we meditate are called skillful means. They are ways of helping ourselves become increasingly awake, enlightened, free from the small sense of me. And there's many different ways to see the small me and help it relax. Metta is a very, very good way. It also feels great. But it is one way. And some people take to it like ducks to water, and some people struggle with it like crazy. So find your way with metta, as we've all been telling you to, in an individual way. And, uh, and it's not some people's path, or only at certain times. Fine. Suzuki Roshi said, everything's perfect. That's because he was in an enlightened moment when he said that. And then he said, and there's always room for improvement. <laughs> and the Buddha was as enlightened as anyone we apparently ever have known about. And he practiced all his life. From the time he was enlightened, he was always practicing because there was always room for improvement. It's about balancing our energy. We don't just like get it and that's it, game over. We may have a complete understanding, huge sense of awakening, but that's about energy. It's about responsiveness. And so something can come to excite us or to disturb us or to sadden us. And so how do we respond to that? So that it's a, a very living, dynamic experience growing towards enlightenment. And with a little meta, meta um, poem by Galway Cannell. All of you know this one. The bud stands for all things, even things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within, of self-blessing. Though sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow, and to retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. Shall I read it again? The bud, or little buds, this whole talk is about expansiveness and contraction. The bud stands for all of us, all things even the things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. So may we all flower from within and expand our little buds. Thank you. Let's sit quietly for a few minutes.
we'll come back in half an hour and end that sitting with chanting as usual. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.